Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. Today's session is entitled Refuting Biden. It's not really refuting Biden. It's just that I have a series of videos in uh, on um, this channel where I refute various people, such as Kant, Hume, Comte. I think I did Comte. Maybe that would be a good one to do in the future. Uh, and I thought that would be the right sobriquet to uh, put this show under. The question it addresses is why this happened. I'm going to try to share my screen now. All right. This is, um, quote, President, quote, Xi Jinping of China. This man with his handout is our president, Joseph Biden. Last week, they met, they shook hands, they smiled, turned to the camera, and later in this video, which I'm not going to play, he's talking about what they talked about. Why did this happen? You can't imagine Franklin Delano Roosevelt going to Nazi Germany and shaking the hand of Hitler. I'm not a fan of FDR, but that wouldn't have happened. Why can the equivalent happen today? President, in quote, Xi is the dictator of China. His role in life is to kill, imprison, enslave. There are, according to one a news service I looked at on the web, one million Uyghurs in detention now, and I'm sure many of them have died. It's possible that he killed someone to frame his rival for power, Bo, who uh, had to step down from the race because he was accused of a murder. We don't know that, but he certainly ordered the deaths of many. And the nature of a dictatorship is, in the words of Ayn Rand's hero, Kira Argunova, in We the Living, to forbid life to the living. So what made Biden shake his hand? I asked someone at breakfast, an acquaintance at breakfast, and he said, well, to pave the way for Hunter Biden to get more money. And he was semi-facetious. But Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a son, and he wouldn't have dreamed of doing that with Hitler shaking his hand for the sake of his son is no, if we lived in different times, any president who did that would be impeached. And he would know he would be impeached, so he would never do it. It doesn't matter what money he might be offered or his son might be offered. It doesn't matter what kind of external emoluments he could acquire from that, 
it would be like the cancel culture regards any expression of sexual interest in the opposite sex. It would be, uh, ironically, the kiss of death for a president or anyone to shake the hands of a dictator. But it isn't now. And it's not just Biden. Do you remember when George W. Bush said, I met with Putin, I looked into his eyes, and I saw deep into his soul, and he's a good man. You remember that? I do. What about Nixon? Nixon, who began as an anti-communist, did the China opening, the Shanghai gesture. He went and met with the the real dictators of China, the real murderers, the, I mean, the murderers on a scale way past uh, Xi Jinping. What about the whole idea of the UN? Let's have world peace by including Soviet Russia and Red China uh, originally, they didn't include Red China, I believe it was Free China, as members. Let's, let's include everybody and bring them in to talk. What about Woodrow Wilson? Before that, with the League of Nations, we're going to prevent war by having everybody sit down and talk. Talking brings understanding. Understanding means peace. Remember the slogan, when people are talking, they're not shooting. Well, it's not true. Maybe they're not shooting, but their troops are shooting. Uh, diplomacy, talks, building bridges. That was uh, the, I think, Nixon's. Uh, slogan in the 60s, let's build bridges, and the left picked it up and loved it. Detente, release of tension. What, what's behind all this idea of talks? Why do people, no matter how many times they fail, and they fail every single time, every time, year after year, remember the peace process in Israel? The people killed by daily attacks of Palestinian rockets don't, don't remember because they're dead. Remember the uh, brokered deal with Sadat, Anwar Sadat? Maybe you're too young to know this, but do you remember the Vietnam War? Let's go to the Paris peace table, peace conference, and sit at the table and negotiate with Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Cong. We've got to have talks, talks, talks. Why? No matter how many times it fails, it's suggested again, and it's celebrated each time it occurs, and then it fails. Why? Because the question is never asked, talks with whom? What is the nature of the other side of the table? What is the nature of Xi Jinping? What is the nature of Vladimir Putin? What is the nature of Mao Zedong? 
What is the nature of Stalin? What is the nature of all these dictators? That's never considered. Because the nature of these people is to have risen to power by murder, to have held on to power, including the power to murder, to be in charge of throttling their citizens' dreams and maybe their very lives, almost always their very lives. Remember when uh, Trump went to North Korea? He didn't say, well, I can't meet with, what is that guy's name? I can't even remember. A clown dictator. Uh, he didn't say, I can't meet with him. He's got blood on his hands and he's a ruler of a country who holds people on a leash. No, he said, well, we can, you know, work things out. He can understand us and we can understand him. Yeah, we could. We don't have to go talk to him to understand we've got minds. He could understand, and I'm sure he does, that the United States of America still represents the freest state, the freest country in the world, and in its original meaning was the country of individual rights. And he understands that he is a killer whose biggest enemy ideologically is rights. And the, our side could recognize that these are people who wake up each morning worrying that they are going to be killed by either one of their associates who's scrambling for power or in a rebellion against the people he's snuffing out the lives of, the populace. No. The nature of the entity involved is never considered. Why? Because a whole long line of philosophers, starting in ancient Greece and climaxing in the United States in the early 20th century in John Dewey, has taught there are no absolutes. There is no identity. Things are, have no fixed nature. What was true yesterday will not be true tomorrow. Cause and effect is old fashioned. Things are not anything. They are bits of behavior. You know what Bertrand Russell said a person was or any entity? a time slice of space-time. You are a cross-section, a time slice in space-time. You're like a freeze frame or a series of freeze frames in a movie. So you could do anything. David Hume said, may we not clearly and distinctly conceive that something falling from the clouds and in all other respects resembling snow, yet had the taste of salt and the hotness of fire. And he attacked the idea of secret hidden 
essences and powers of things. No, things are what they do. They have no identity. They are not really things. The father of all this is the Greek philosopher Heraclitus. Heraclitus is famous for the saying, you can't step in the same river twice. For fresh waters are ever flowing upon you. And in fact, you can't be you twice. You're changing all the time. Everything is changed. It's changed all the way down. There are no things. There's only process. If that's the case, if that's the metaphysics, then it makes sense not to consider what the guy did yesterday. Yeah, yesterday he slaughtered some people, and this morning he issued edicts to round up his enemies. But that was then. This is now. What prevents someone from making that mistake, can we call it a mistake, that tragic insanity from committing that tragic insanity is the understanding, as Ayn Rand said, to exist is to be something. I'm quoting now, as distinguished from the nothing of non-existence, it is to be an entity of a specific nature made of specific attributes. Centuries ago, the man who was, no matter what his errors, the greatest of your philosophers, meaning Aristotle, has stated the formula defining the concept of existence and the rule of all knowledge. A is A. A thing is itself. You have never grasped the meaning of his statement. I am here to complete it. Existence is identity. Consciousness is identification. Close quote from Atlas Shrugged. The motive of, for not considering entities, the motive for, for swallowing the pragmatist, Heraclitean, process philosophy idea that it's all just time slices of changing images. The motive is the desire to get away from moral judgment. It's to be free from what you have done. If nothing is a real entity, if things have no nature, no character, then you are not to blame. That was yesterday's me that did that. I can't be held responsible. This is the time slice today. Quoting again from Atlas Shrugged, the freedom you seek is freedom from the fact that if you stole your wealth, you are a scoundrel, no matter how much you give to charity or how many prayers you recite. That if you sleep with sluts, you're not a worthy husband, no matter how anxiously you feel that you love your wife next morning. That you are an entity, not a series of random pieces scattered through a universe where nothing sticks and nothing commits you to anything. The universe of a child's nightmare, where identity 
switch and swim, that you are a man, that you are an entity, that you are. No matter how eagerly you claim that the goal of your mystic wishing is a higher mode of life, the rebellion against identity is the wish for non-existence. The desire not to be anything is the desire not to be. So yes, there's a venal motive in all these uh, talks and de quiet diplomacy and deal making with murderers, but it's not for money. It's for living a philosophy where you can't be blamed by what you uh, for what you did. That you are not to be judged that you are not anything in particular. Yeah, you may have done some terrible things, but that was then. So the moral is to be is to be something, is to be an entity made of specific attributes. And that means you do not pretend to yourself that if you just get the head butcher to like you and smile, while he shakes your hand, that you've accomplished something. You wouldn't think that if you patted a tiger on the head, that he wouldn't eat you. Because, oh, now he understands me. He understands that my intentions are peaceful, so he will be my friend. A tiger is a tiger. A killer is a killer. A dictator is a killer on a nationwide scale. There should be no international organization of uh, free nations and slave states together in, in any kind of dancing around talking. There should be no diplomacy. There should be no, the only communication that sh there should be with the dictator is the one that says, get your citizens out of X because in 24 hours, the bombs are going to fall. And that is a nice, probably two nice things to do. So ultimata, that is the only form of community. And you don't listen to what they say in response. You wouldn't listen to what Hitler says. Why would you listen to the equivalent North Korea, North Korea, China, the Soviet Union, the present Russian Federation, Cuba, any of these places that are dictatorships and hate individual rights, hate life, and want to destroy. So I, I have covered all that I wanted to cover on this, and I will take, we had some questions, Daniel, from last time. We have one question on topic. It's in Good. the chat from James. She is not on Hitler's level. He didn't declare war on us. 
not saying Biden should ever interact with it, but it's a false equivalency. It's not a false equivalency. Would you say that um, a person who's killed one individual cannot be equilibrated with the person who's killed 10? Or the person who's killed 10 can't be equivalent to a person who's killed 100,000? To kill one person is to make yourself a beast of prey who should be killed. Now, there's, that's not to necessarily go along with capital punishment because you may have, the government may have made a mistake as they have many times in the past. But morally, anyone who kills one person deserves to die. So there are no degrees of evil once you reach the level of murder. And whether he declared war on us or not, he's declared war on his own citizens. Uh, now, from last time, well, let's see, is this uh, on this one? Uh, Liam Miller says, in regards to cause and effect in the law of identity, just because I observe a ball falling 100 times, does that guarantee I absolutely understand the nature of the ball and could be 100% certain it will fall the 101st time? In principle, yes. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of false uh, philosophy in that. There's no such thing as absolutely understanding. There's just understanding. And to just watch a ball fall is not to understand it. Here's what you would have to do. You would have to integrate, and then you can be 100% certain. You integrate, oh, I'm going to use a mouse, okay? I feel the resistance. I feel the weight of this. If I let it go, I feel it pulling down. And I feel the weight of this. I'm holding up a copy of Atlas. And I feel my own weight when I get tired. And I know everything that exists has a tendency to fall down if you don't know about the law of matter attracting other matter, which uh, Newton discovered. I know that things on earth have weight. Everything I've ever seen has weight and that I can feel it pull towards the earth. So if that's what you mean by understanding the nature of the ball, it's a physical object on near Earth, yes, then you can be absolutely certain that it's going to be it's going to fall. Now, what happens if something interferes with that? There's a sudden updraft from somewhere. Uh, the ball, unbeknownst to you, has a metal core and there's a magnet turned on above, so it goes upwards instead of downwards. That's fine. That doesn't change the fact that the nature of the ball, unimpeded, uninterfered with, is to fall when released. Certainty is not an out-of-context, dogmatic absolute. You can be 100% certain and be wrong. 
that is not a violation of your certainty. Certainty is an epistemological assessment. It says all the reasons that I have and I have enough point in one direction. This is going to happen or this is a fact. This is the case. All my evidence is in that direction. It's not in doubt. There's, it'd be irrational to doubt it. So it's a statement about what it's rational to commit yourself to, what still has grounds for doubt, what has a lot of grounds for doubt, but has some evidence in favor. And on the other side, what is barely possible, but unlikely, and what has no evidence and therefore is to be dismissed. So there's a scale from zero evidence to 100% evidence, 100% of what's required to accept it. And when you say I'm certain, you're saying I have all the evidence I need. I don't need to look any further. I can act without doubt, without hesitation on this because there's sufficient and undiluted, uncontradicted evidence in its favor. So it's an epistemological as opposed to what? Well, knowing to know something, that something has to be a fact. So I can, I can say I was certain, but I was wrong. But you can't say I knew it, but I was wrong. I knew the ball would fall, but it didn't. No, you didn't know it would fall because to know it means to grasp a fact. To be certain means it's past the tests. So it's a different kind of assessment. Now, how do I know this? What's my grounds for saying all this? Well, ask yourself, why is there a need for a concept of certainty? What facts of reality gives rise to the need for a concept of certainty that's epistemological rather than knowledge and truth, which are, have a metaphysical component and an epistemological component? And it's the fact that you have to go by the knowledge you have. You need an assessment. You need to grade various competing hypotheses. That's not why we have the concept knowledge. So there are facts of reality that require that you assess evidence. And that's why certainty is the term that's traditionally been used inconsistently for that, and it should be consistently used for that. So no, just, you know, just imagine you, you can't act. Imagine you're been paralyzed from birth. Now, you probably couldn't even have sensory perception, but imagine that you could and you watch. The ball's dropped a hundred times, uh, released a hundred times and it falls. That wouldn't be sufficient. That would be enough to say, well, it can fall. Under certain conditions, it will fall, but I don't know what will happen next time. But that's not what you have what you have is all the knowledge since you learned to crawl, which all points in that direction. And when you say it's going to fall, I'm certain. You're not saying 
I know somehow that there's no interfering factor. Saying unless there's some hidden secret uninterfering uh, factor, which I have no reason to hypothesize, it's going to fall. And that is correct. Okay. Um, Bonnie Bertrand, was that last time? I think it was. Why do people say follow your heart and not your head? What is the relationship between emotions and reason? The relationship is cause and effect. Your reason, in the broadest sense, your conceptual faculty, your ability to make ideas, to, to reach ideas and conclusions, whether they're right or wrong, is what puts value judgments and beliefs into your subconscious. And when they are activated by something you see, you feel an emotion. So you, if you want to live and someone jumps out and points a gun at you and you know what a gun is, you feel terror. If you don't know what a gun is, like you're six months old and someone jumps out with a gun and points at you, you will not feel terror because you don't know about that. Even if you're suicidally depressed, I doubt that you could not be startled by someone jumping out and pointing a gun. But once you realize what's going on, that could be a good thing for you if you're trying to commit suicide. So you have to have values and beliefs automatized in your subconscious, which means stored in a certain way in your brain. That's what reason and that, that's how your ability to draw conclusions, factual and evaluative, get stored and underlie your emotional response. Why do people say follow your heart and not your head? Well, because they've been taught bad philosophy in school, but why were they taught bad philosophy in school? Why is that idea still alive? There's an element, a twisted element of truth in that. It's not stated right, but you should consult what your subconscious is tapping you on the shoulder to say. So if you have misgivings about something, that's a common thing. Well, you know, this guy looks all right, but you know, I don't, I don't trust him. I don't feel uh, comfortable around something in my stomach, you know, reacts badly. You should spend some time trying to understand what that reaction is to and whether it has any legitimacy. So your subconscious can react to more than your first snap judgment consciously made. Your subconscious holds a wider context, not a, by any means a perfect full context, but your subconscious is organized to give rise to signals based upon things that have not yet come into consciousness. And you should pay attention to those stomach feelings, but not take them as gospel. You should pursue them, see what they come from, see what you can make of it, and then go by your conscious judgment. So there is the kind of person who says, well, I know this is the right thing to do because 
I've been told that it is, or I read in the Bible that it is, but I just don't, you know, my heart says no, or I know this woman is, people say she's selfish, but I'm attracted to her. And I, people say, follow your heart, not your head. Because in some cases, your head is filled with nonsense. Well, in some cases, you have some, some people say are filled with nonsense, but some, a lot of people have some false notions in their head. And sometimes their subconscious integrations are better than their theoretical conscious judgments. But only your conscious mind can decide which is right in any given circumstance. So you, it's like two attorneys at a trial. You give both sides your feelings, that is, that context, and your theoretical conscious judgment, a fair hearing, you listen to them, you probe them, and then you go consciously by what your reason says then. So there is a false dichotomy that people can have where they just want to act, as we say, rationalistically. They act on the basis of some out-of-context absolute, some dogma, some theory that they haven't digested and haven't sensitively applied to the current situation. <clears throat> and that's the innocent part of the uh, follow your heart, not your head. But it's, it should be listened to your subconscious, decide if it knows something you haven't faced consciously, not follow it. And the, the non-innocent part of follow your heart, not your head, is a hatred for reason. That's what the philosophers who pushed this line had in, in mind. They had ideas that they couldn't defend in reason, like the Sermon on the Mount or any religious doctrine, they, can't, they couldn't defend it, or uh, having talks with a dictator. So wanting to hold on to their emotions, they said, emotions are superior to reason. So um, there's an innocent side of it, which I think I've beaten to death here, but there's a big guilty element in some people's attraction to that idea um now that was from last time and bonnie oh you asked that again bonnie um there's a, a question from abdullah sar who's studying uh, who asks is studying philosophy worthwhile even though it's corrupted bad ideas uh yeah i had a session on that uh yes it is very worthwhile because you see the contrast with, you see two things, you see the contrast with the truth and you need contrast in order to see anything. White chalk on a white blackboard cannot be seen. You need a contrast. Consciousness is a difference detector is my slogan for this. Consciousness requires contrast, change, difference. So it's very good for that reason, and it's very good because it explains what's happening in the world. It explains the nature of the actions of the people who've internalized the wrong philosophy, the corrupt philosophy. 
How does one know and choose his central purpose? That's more my wife's uh, purview. Jean Maroney Binswanger does uh, life coaching, I guess it's called. And that's one of the things that covers. But you, um, it's a big subject and you have to be very introspective and not expect to necessarily get like the answer, you know, oh, if I could only find it, it's in there waiting to come out. Maybe not. Maybe you have to go down the road of the most interesting thing to you that you, you know, think is, I might like that and see how it goes. I will stop there. That's a big subject. It's an interesting subject. Perhaps we'll do the next. Uh, I'll invite Jean on. Yeah, why don't we do that next week? So, Abdullah, you have sparked next week's uh, HBTV session. My wife and I will address this question. Thank you. See you then.